Take a Bible and find Colossians 2. We're going to work through this passage this morning. A couple of housekeeping things before we get started. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, We mentioned this a couple of times, but if you came in late, we are not going to come by and pass the elements out. And so they're at a table back on this side and a table back on this side. Uh, You're more than welcome to hop up and go grab those if you'd like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us here in just a minute. There is an outline in your bulletin. I'm aware that the the passage is labeled incorrectly. That threw some of you into a panic this morning. It's the right outline. It's just the wrong title. And by the time Crystal and I saw it, we were both too cheap to reprint the notes. So scratch it out. Colossians 2, 6 to 15. This is week seven in our walk through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which means it's the seventh week that we've talked about this driving theme that runs all the way through the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We saw this very clearly back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that says Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the supreme one. He is the ultimate first place one. We saw this earlier in chapter 1 as we talked about Jesus being the Lord. We use that word. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of redemption. He is Lord of the church. You see that same word repeated. I know it's a churchy word, but when you read this word Lord, we're talking about the absolute supremacy of Jesus. It's repeated in our passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Christ Jesus the Lord. All of these things reminding us as we go through this book that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is preeminent. He is the top dog. He is first place in all of creation, over all of redemption, and most certainly in the church. Now, there's another word in Colossians 2, verse 6 you need to pay attention to, and it's the word therefore. That word is a turning point in this letter. It's sort of like a pivot. Up to this point, Paul's been talking about doctrine. He's been talking about theology. He's been talking about his ministry as a minister of the gospel and how he proclaims these doctrines and he teaches this theology. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, therefore. So it's like a look back to all of that doctrine. Then it's a turn. It's a pivot. And now, beginning in verse 6, moving through the end of the letter, Paul's going to say, this is why all that doctrine matters. This is why all that theology matters. This is how all that stuff that he lays out in the first part of the book actually impacts your life and my life, and specifically the life of this church in Colossae. Now, one warning when we come to this passage, Colossians 2, 6 to 15. When you get commentaries out, and you're reading through these commentaries and what they have to say about the book of Colossians, and you come to this section. Commentaries are usually written in sections, so they take a section and they deal with the section and they move on. The writing done on this section, just anecdotally in the commentaries I have in my office, is at least twice as wordy as other sections of similar size meaning there's a lot of stuff in this passage. There's a lot of complexity in this passage. There are an incredible number of rabbit trails that you can go down rooted in this passage. The vocabulary and the grammar of this passage is difficult, and so it requires a lot of explanation. This passage is filled 
almost every single phrase is filled with some sort of Old Testament, not necessarily a quotation, but an allusion to something in the Old Testament. And we could just spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks digging through this passage. My intention this morning is not to deal with every single question or debate or issue that you could talk about when you look at Colossians 2, 6 to 15. It's to see the big picture, the overarching message of what Paul's saying in this section. To do that, we've got to say one thing about a group of beings known as the principalities and the powers. Colossians 2, 6 to 15 refers to, and I'm just going to use this phrase, the principalities and powers, is a term that Bible scholars use to refer to a group of personal, spiritual, evil beings. Now, understand that principalities and powers is not in this particular passage. What I'm saying to you is that if you are a a King James Version person, you will find this phrase in Paul's letters, principalities and powers. And it's, a, it's become a catch-all. It's sort of become the scholarly label, the, the, the term that Bible scholars use to refer to all the places where Paul talks about personal, evil, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so if you have your, your passage open right now, you can see in verse 8, Paul talks about the elemental spirits of the world. That's part of the principalities and powers. In verse 10, he uses the phrase rule and authority. Those are terms, not just talking about positions of rule or authority, but talking about the principalities and the powers. Verse 15, the rulers and the authorities. He's talking about this class, this group of spiritual, evil, personal beings. You saw it if you turn back to Colossians 1 verse 16. He talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And I told you in chapter 1, we're going to come back to that group of beings. Okay? He talks about it if you jump down past our passage to chapter 2, verse 20. He talks about the elemental spirits of the world again. Look, Paul refers to these beings in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, here in Colossians. What he's talking about is what Americans in everyday common conversation would call demons. When you study Paul's letters, he doesn't use the word demon very often, just a handful of times. Usually, he uses these other titles, and the the Bible scholar label that gets put on that is principalities and powers, and they're mentioned at several points in our passage, and so we need to understand who Paul's talking about when he talks about the elemental spirits and the rule and the authority and the ruler's in the authorities. So all of that brings us to the big idea of our passage. What is Paul driving at in this complex paragraph? This is what he's telling us. Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces of evil by dying for our sins on the cross. He disarmed the spiritual forces of evil. That's the word in verse 15. You could say he disarmed the principalities and the powers. He disarmed the rulers in the authorities. He disarmed them. How did he do it? By dying on the cross for our sins. There was news that broke this week from China. There was news that the Chinese tested some sort of 
hypersonic missile with nuclear capabilities and the news reports came out and they said they, they've been working on this missile for some time and it can circle the globe all the way around and this test launch circled the globe just like they wanted it to and it landed within 25, I believe 24 miles close to its target. Now, for fifth graders in science fair, if you can get a missile to circle the world and hit within 25 miles, that's pretty good. But you understand in actual warfare, 25 miles is a long spread of distance to try to land a missile. But all the news reports were so impressed with what had happened. And uh, there was a lot of confusion. A lot of U.S. officials acted surprised that the Chinese had this capability and that they would be able to do something like that, like this. In fact, one unnamed official said, we have no idea how they did this. We didn't know that they had this kind of technology and we have no idea how they did this. Now, I'm not trying to get into any geopolitical debate. I'm just gonna say, I don't believe for a second that they have no idea how they did it. That's just a thing that you say, you come out and you put some kind of spin on it and you say, I, we have no idea how they do this. In reality, they probably have a very good idea what sort of capabilities they have and how they did it. And this technology is probably similar to what has happened a lot in recent years when you look at the Chinese and their expertise in something called reverse engineering. This was a concern with the recent events in Afghanistan. The Americans are creative people. So Americans come up with ideas, all sorts of crazy ideas, military technology, all sorts of stuff. Americans come up with the ideas. Chinese people, the nation of China, tend to get their hands on those ideas one way or another, and then they work backwards. They take the final product and they work backwards to understand how we made what we made. And in that process of reverse engineering, they gain the technological capability to recreate whatever it is that we had come up with in the first place. And in some instances, to improve the design. And working backwards, sometimes you see some of the design flaws in a particular thing, and they end up with something that is very similar, if not better at times, than what we invented in the first place. Now, what does all of this have to do with Colossians 2? This is a complex passage is a very technical passage, is a long sort of rambling sentence from Paul where he takes one idea into another, into another, into another. There's a lot of stuff to undo here. And I'm just giving you the warning on the front end that basically what I'm gonna try to do with you this morning is reverse engineer Paul. So we're not gonna start in verse six and work all the way down to verse 15. You can do that. But in order to do that, clearly, as a group, you end up jumping down to the bottom and jumping back to the middle, and what does he mean here, and what does he mean there? So we're just going to try to step back from this passage. We're going to try to cover all the major important pieces, but basically we want to reverse engineer this passage and back into what it is Paul is actually calling this church and what he's calling our church to do. So we're going to try to make sense of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we'll start with this truth. All people are guilty of trespassing against the law of God, and all people have an unpayable sin debt before God. Every human being has trespassed against God and his law. And one of the consequences of that, we could say lots of different things about the consequence of trespassing God's law, but one of the consequences is that we have a sin debt before God 
that we are completely incapable, completely unable to pay on our own. So if your copy of the scriptures is open, look at verse 13. Paul says that at one point in time, we were dead in our trespasses. Dead in our trespasses. That idea of a trespass assumes that there is a lawgiver and a law. There is a standard to which we must conform. The idea is almost as if God takes a stick and draws a line in the sand and says, do not cross that line of morality. Do not cross that line of worship. Do not cross that ethical line. Don't cross it. And the person who trespasses, which is all of us, boldly and willfully and defiantly cross that line. That's what it means to trespass. God has drawn the line in the sand and we have all jumped over the line. The result is that we're dead. We are dead, spiritually dead, unable to get ourselves back on the other side of that line apart from God's grace. Look what Paul talks about in verse 14. He says, there is a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is the sort of thing that we as Americans publish in the newspaper. Bankruptcy. These people, this business, this organization has a debt that they are completely unable to pay. And we as a society have a a legal process for getting people out of that bind. Spiritually, you and I are completely bankrupt before God. We stand before God with a debt that is so great, so massive, so huge, we could never, never pay it. Until you understand these truths, you're really not ready to talk about the finished work of Jesus. This is not front and foremost in what Paul's arguing here, but it's in the background, and you've got to nail it down. Americans have got to nail these truths down. You have got to start with the idea that there is a God, that he is holy, 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 and he gives the law. He gets to determine where the line in the sand is drawn. And you've got to start with the understanding that we're sinful people. We have trespassed the boundaries that God has set. We have accumulated this debt that we're completely incapable of paying. And until you understand those truths, who God is in his holiness and who we are in our sinfulness, you're not at all ready to talk about the finished work of Jesus. So we start with this. We have trespassed and we have a sin debt. Secondly, There are spiritual forces of evil that oppose God and his people, and these beings have power over sinful humans. This is where we're talking about the principalities and the powers. This is where we're talking about what many Americans would refer to in common parlance as demons, demonic spiritual forces of evil. This is tough for a lot of Americans to think about because there's so much confusion in our society. Look, this confusion when it comes to demonic beings is nothing new. There's an author named C.S. Lewis. In 1942, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and he said this. This quote is almost some 80 years old. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. 
A materialist is somebody who believes there is no spiritual world, there is only matter, so they do not believe in demons. And the magician is someone who is so completely obsessed with demons, they find a demon under every rock and behind every bush. And Lewis says, these are the two mistakes that we make as a society. He's writing a long time ago, but it's still true today. And these spiritual forces of evil don't care which extreme you fall towards. They just want you to fall to one of those extremes. There are a lot of magicians out there today. A lot of magicians. These people form their beliefs about demonic beings from movies like The Exorcist. It's just popular culture influencing what they believe about the spiritual realm. And they know the Bible talks about demons. So then anything that culture or society says about demonic beings, principalities, and powers, they just accept it. This is the vast majority of the stuff. If you Google spiritual warfare or you go to a Christian bookstore and you find a spiritual warfare section, this is the vast majority of the trash that you will find. Is a complete obsession with spiritual beings and let's figure out their names and let's figure out where they operate and let's figure, it, figure out how to control them and bind them and interact with them. It is a complete bunch of garbage and there's a lot of it. But there's also a lot of materialists out there and the materialists, the people who disbelieve in the existence of these demons, they say, oh yeah, demons, principalities and powers. Yeah, like fairies and goblins and trolls and leprechauns, principalities, powers, all those silly things, the tooth fairy, all those things that kids believe in. Those are all kids' things. And they say, you, you shouldn't believe in those things because they're just imaginary. They don't really exist. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that spiritual forces of evil, principalities and powers, demonic beings are real. And they stand in opposition to God and they stand in opposition to God's people. You and I need to understand this. I'm not talking about wild, crazy stories about demon possession, which by the way is largely an American fascination invention at least as it's commonly talked about today. I'm not talking about heads spinning around and projectile vomiting and all the silly, dopey stuff you see around Halloween. That's what I'm not, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about the biblical assumption, the biblical truth that there are spiritual forces of evil out there and that they influence our lives in some ways. What does that influence look like? It looks like temptation to sin. Look, some of our temptation comes from our own sinful hearts. James says that. We're lured away when our desires drag us and entice us to sin. So our hearts do a lot of the heavy lifting. But there are spiritual forces of evil that tempt God's people to sin. We're talking about guilt and the, the constant accusations of the enemy. I don't mean guilt in the sense that God is holy and you're a sin sinner and you're guilty before him. I'm talking about the overwhelming, crushing, crippling feelings of guilt and shame where you hear the good news about Jesus Christ, you hear that he died for your sins on the cross, but you just can't seem to believe it or accept it or feel that it's true. It's just that crippling sense of guilt, you're too dirty, you're too bad, you're too far gone, you've sinned too many times. It's from the enemy. New Testament talks about these spiritual beings involved in idolatry and false religions. Now again, I wanna be careful here. We are wicked people 
And on our own, we are entirely capable of coming up with idolatrous, false religious systems. We don't need any help in that. But there are times where I think we have help in that. And the New Testament talks about this. That many times there are spiritual forces of evil standing behind false forms of religion and worship. Paul talks here in verse 8 about human philosophy. Philosophy that is empty It's deceitful. It's just human tradition. It doesn't have anything to do with the revealed word of God. It's just the stuff that men and women dream up. Many times, these spiritual forces of evil stand behind all of these things. Paul wants us to acknowledge this. We have an enemy, the devil. He walks around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour, and he's not alone. He has help. The principalities and the powers, the elemental spirits of the world, the rulers and the authorities, these demonic beings. We cannot pretend that they don't exist, but we must remember that the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That brings us to the next truth of this passage. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. In the beginning, he created the principalities and the powers, and at the cross, he disarmed the principalities and the powers. He is God incarnate. This has been a theme in the book of Colossians. Just to go back, if your your Bible is open, in chapter one, he talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, verse 16. By Jesus, all things were created. He's the creator That's John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all of the things that were created were created through him. That's right there in Colossians 1.15 and 16. Look at verse 17. Not only did he create all things, but he holds all things together. Only God can do that. Jesus, the creator, the very image of God, is holding all things together. Look at verse 19. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's not like Jesus was a human who had a little piece of God in him. The fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, dwells in Jesus. Look at our passage, chapter 2, verse 9, a very similar phrase. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is a miracle that when you begin to think about it and talk about it, your mind reaches its end very quickly. We're talking about the miracle of the incarnation. We're talking about the creator God in the fullness of time entering creation and taking the form of the one creature, human being, that was created in his image. It is God becoming man, truly man, fully man, without ceasing to be God in any way, shape, or form. And at that point, your mind just begins to break down. And you sort of come to the end of yourself and you say, I, I can't get my spiritual arms all the way around this. Well, that's okay. You're not God. You'll never be able to get your spiritual arms all the way around the infinite God. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is central to our faith. One of the things that for the life of me I will never understand, and maybe I'm as guilty as any other pastor for this, we sing about this amazing miracle one month out of the year. 
I mean, this is amazing stuff. This is really big stuff. It's really important stuff. This is one of the things that sets us apart from many, many other cult groups and false religions. And we celebrate it for about five to six weeks a year. And then the rest of the year, we just sing about the cross. We read Jesus' teaching. We give lots of other attention to who Jesus is and what he came to do, but we just sort of segregate this out. Now, all of this sort of touches on the debates about when does Christmas season start. How many of you think we're already in Christmas season? Be bold, raise your hand. If you come on Wednesday nights, you know that I say, when Hobby Lobby puts out Christmas trees, we can start singing Christmas songs, which is like February. So it's pretty much fair game. And people argue about this and debate it. How many of you are already listening to Christmas music? Show of hands, okay? How many of you have already put your Christmas tree up? At least one tree. There you go, I knew it. Tammy Dooley. How many of you got up? Four trees. Anybody top four? Four is pretty good. How many of you have already watched at least one Christmas movie? Hallmark, Elf, Die Hard, I don't care. Anybody? How many of you already put the Christmas lights on your house? How many of you never took them off last year? That's what my neighbor does. He just leaves them up all year long. It's Christmas all year long. So look, people argue and they say, no, you, you can't take away Thanksgiving. You got to wait for Thanksgiving before you can celebrate Christmas and all sorts of stuff. I, I get the debates about the music and the lights and the trees and all that stuff. And I'm just saying, it's a strange thing that if you were to walk in here on a nice spring, Easter Sunday morning, and we were to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, you would say, our pastor's lost it. He's got the two, big, the two big ones mixed up. He thinks it's Christmas. It's actually Easter. We're not supposed to sing about that right now. There's something in us that says we sing about that stuff at Christmas. And I'm just telling you, it's really strange because this is really, really important stuff. This is what Paul is saying in this passage and in the book of Colossians. This is what the New Testament is telling you. There is a God. In the beginning, he created everything. He is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. The creator God, in the fullness of time, sent his Son. He's not a creature, but sent himself, sent the Son, to become incarnate, to take the form of a human being. And he's truly and fully human, and he's truly and fully God, and he didn't send the Son. God the Father did not send God the Son to become a man, to become God incarnate, just because he was bored and had nothing else to do. He sent him on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. There's a lot of different components to the ministry of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, the death of Jesus. But one of the things that Paul's talking about here is that Jesus came to disarm the principalities and the powers. How did he do it? With a hypersonic missile that can circle the globe? He did it by dying, by laying down his life on a cross. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down. The good shepherd laid it down of his own accord. He died for his people. We do sing about this quite regularly. 
when we sing the third verse of Horatio Spafford's great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Look what Paul says in verse 14. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That bankruptcy notice that had all of our names on it, nailed to the cross. He is disarming the principalities and the powers. Now look, this is big stuff. It's really big stuff. Sometimes we go watch superhero movies, and we like superhero movies because they give us a sense of an otherworldly rescue and something big and something cosmic and something supernatural. We have it right here. The creator God entered creation in the fullness of time. He was born of a woman. He took on human flesh, God incarnate, living a life of perfect obedience, laying down his life for us on the cross, being raised three days later by the power of God the Holy Spirit, promising to come back and to judge the living and the dead. That's a big story. That's a cosmic story. And right at the heart of it is this idea that he disarmed the principalities and the powers. Not only do we believe that that actually happened in space, time, history, on this planet, But we also believe that there must be a time when all of those timeless truths come crashing into your life. And when Almighty God reaches down into your dead heart and creates life. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate baptism. And Paul talks about baptism in this passage. Baptism is the initial one-time celebration of God making dead sinners alive in Jesus and bringing those people into the covenant community. And this is a rabbit trail we could trace. We're just going to look down it. In the old covenant, the sign that a person had entered the covenant community was circumcision. And Paul talks about that here. But he connects it to the idea of baptism. And he connects it to this idea that in baptism, there's a celebration that what was dead has been made alive and that God's people have been brought into his covenant community. They have passed through death and into life. When we baptize people and I talk with them before we're up there in the middle of the service, I'm talking to them about baptism. We talk about the idea of why we immerse people in water. And I ask those people, children and grown-ups, senior adults, I don't care. I ask them, what would happen if we left you under the water? Eyes get big. I say, that's exactly right. That's the picture. That's the point. You're dead, and the old Jew has been buried, but God has reached down. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive in Jesus, and you have passed through that death to life, and it's a celebration. When a person is baptized, it's a celebration, not that the water is somehow magical, but that almighty God, in his grace and his mercy, has sovereignly acted to save a trespasser, a debtor, and he has brought them from death to life. He's brought them into his family. Now, if you've never been baptized, I'd love to visit with you about that. Some of you have never done that. 
and I would love to talk with you about it. I promise I won't scare you too bad with the holding you under the water stuff, but I'd love to talk to you about celebrating, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what God has done in your life. Now, this next point's in italics because I'm just telling you this is not rooted in the text, but we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, and I want to connect it to what Paul says to baptism here. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing, it's not the initial, but it's the ongoing celebration of the finished work of Christ for those who have been made alive and brought into God's family. A Christian needs to be baptized once when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But a Christian celebrates the Lord's Supper over and over and over again. It's an ongoing celebration and an ongoing reminder of what Christ has done for his people. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. If you have your elements, I'll ask you to grab those. And uh, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus and you have obeyed his command to be baptized, we would love for you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. I ask you to take your elements and you can open the, the part that has the cracker in it. And up on the screen, I'm going to put a scripture. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 24 says this. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can open the other side of the cup. Again, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians. We're going to read the next two verses, 25 and 26. Paul says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup in the new covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One more point in this passage. Talked about baptism, talked about the Lord's Supper. Christians are people who have received Jesus. They've received Jesus. However, Christians must continue to walk in Jesus to be rooted in Jesus and to be built up in Jesus. I told you we were going to reverse engineer this passage. We were going to sort of start at the end and work back towards the beginning. There are a lot of Bible scholars that look at verse 6 and 7, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, and they say this is the central command or the central call of the book. The driving dominant idea is that Jesus Christ is supreme, Jesus is preeminent, Jesus is Lord of all. But this is the one central thing that Paul is calling Christians. He's calling churches to recognize. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. For some of you this morning, you need to stop right there at the beginning of verse 6 and this idea of receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. You need to think about, in your own life, acknowledging the holiness of God, the lawgiver, 
and recognizing your sin and agreeing with God about your sinfulness. You need to confess your complete inability to pay your sin debt. And you need to receive what Christ has done for you. You need to believe the good news about Jesus Christ. And you need to be baptized. It's a biblical command. You need to celebrate what God has done in your life. Passing you, bringing you from death to life. That's where some of you need to start. Many of you have done that. And many times in the United States, we think, well, that's it. That's what you do. You trust in Jesus, and then you're good. But God has given us two ordinances as a church. He's given us baptism as this initial sign or symbol that a person has trusted in Jesus. And he gave us the Lord's Supper as an ongoing, repeated sign that we are continuing to trust in Jesus and we're continuing to follow Jesus. And Paul connects those things here, I think. He says that you ought to walk in Jesus. That's an active, ongoing thing. It's talking about the everyday pattern and direction of your life. It's talking about a living relationship with a real person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that you receive certain truths and ideas and nod your head to them. It's that you enter into a relationship with a person, with God who became man to disarm the principalities and the powers. You walk with him in a living relationship. Paul says you need to be built in him. Built in him. That's a construction metaphor. You need to have a solid foundation underneath your feet. But everybody knows you don't just lay a foundation unless you intend to build something on top of that foundation. That's what a foundation is for. So you need to be built up in Jesus Christ. That's an ongoing activity. He says you need to be rooted in Jesus. The point of roots, this is an agricultural metaphor, is that you grow deep roots, strong roots, so that there can be evidence of life above the ground. Walk in him, be built in him, be rooted in him. This is the difference between making a simple decision about Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. This is the central call of this book, and it makes perfect sense. If Jesus Christ is supreme, if Jesus Christ is preeminent, if Jesus Christ is Lord of all, he demands and he deserves far more than a simple decision and a spiritual nod of the head. He deserves all that we are and all that we have following him in discipleship.